All right, church, if you brought your Bible, I want you to find the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to go ahead and tell you early, give you plenty of time. Find the book of Nehemiah, go to chapter 6. If you have trouble finding Nehemiah, go to the big book of Psalms in the Old Testament, hang a left, go through two or three books, and you'll arrive at Nehemiah. We're going to read in chapter 6 toward the end of the message. Now, Please hear me when I say that if you are new to Grace Community Church, you may not know this about me, but if you do know me, you know that I'm not a rah-rah guy, okay? I- I'm not a rah-rah, you know, like one of those motivational speakers with big teeth. That's not me at all. Um, I have been criticized over the years for not bringing our successes to you more often. In other words, people have said, why don't you tell us what happened with this or how that turned out? Uh, because I don't know, it just doesn't seem right for some reason to keep banging the drum and rah-rah, look what we did. But today, if you'll bear with me, I want to do just a little bit of that at the beginning of this message. Uh, These are exciting times at Grace Community Church for me personally, uh, for our staff, and for many of you, as I've come to understand it, because we are in transition. Something big is about to happen Uh, We're a part of something that's much bigger than ourselves, and it's been a long time since something of this substance has changed around Grace Community Church. Every week I'm meeting new families. Uh, Last week kids were coming out of the woodwork over there in Kids Jam. We had a huge service last week, two of them actually, another big one at 930. It's just fun to be together We're gaining a little bit of momentum. Some good things are happening. When I asked our treasurer, you know, well, what's the number in the building fund? I didn't dream it'd be approaching $200,000. That was a a wonderful surprise to me. When that contractor came and sat in my office and said, this is what my company wants to do, and we're willing to put it in writing, uh, that was exciting to me. It was exhilarating. Some good things are happening. In fact, I look at this picture, this three-dimensional picture, And I believe it's God's next big thing for Grace Community Church. And that's exciting to me. We believe that expanding our facility is God's next big thing for this church. Now, it took us a long time to arrive at this conclusion. i got to be honest. Uh, But I am excited about what's going on in this stage of our building. I had dinner last week with a couple who used to attend this church and And then they retired, and they moved closer to their family, which is in another state. And uh, he talked about how much he misses Grace Community Church. He calls it Grace Church. And we sat there at dinner, and believe it or not, in this 70-year-old man's eyes, tears began to well up, and he said, Mike, you don't understand. He said, 20 years ago, this church changed my life. He said, we still watch online every week. He said, for years we've been searching for a place like Grace Community Church. He said, we haven't been able to find it. This was a man that in his early 50s walked in the doors of Grace Community Church for the first time in a church in decades. This was a guy that came up in church, but as soon as he was a teenager and didn't have to go to church, he didn't. And he pursued business, and he pursued career development and education, and he grew a family and raised a family. But when he was in his early 50s, still knowing that something was lacking, he walked through those doors and God grabbed his heart and that changed everything. It's been about two weeks ago, I got a text message 
from a young man named Jason. Jason and his family, they attended this church for about seven years, and then he completed his education, took a big job in another state, and we had to see him leave. But he said, Mike, we haven't talked in a long time. I just wanted to again say thank you for Grace Community Church. Grace Community Church saved my marriage. Grace Community Church changed my family. Over and over, when I see the video that John put together of that last Kenya trip, chills just stand up on my arms. We did that together. I can vividly remember many, many years ago, John and two other men in our church, they got on an airplane, they flew to Kenya, having never been there, they met someone there at the airport, rode in a buggy six hours out into the bush, looked at a 25-acre plot of land that had nothing on it, and bought it. And since then, we together have built school buildings. We've built lunchrooms. We sent them a tractor. They're growing gardens. Hundreds of children who may not otherwise have been educated are now educated. They're getting good nutritious meals. We did that together because we weren't afraid to take God's next big step together. I don't know if you know this or not, but I did a little calculation this past week in my office. In just 20 years or so, this church, small and simple as we are, we've given over a million dollars to ministry, a million dollars to missions around the world and here locally. It's phenomenal to me what God can do when we're simply willing to take that next big step. Now, that's about us. Now I want to focus on you. Let me ask you a question. What is God's next big step for you? What's God's next big thing for you? What's the goal? How about for your family? How about for your faith walk? What is God doing to prepare you for his next big step? Better question, what are you doing to prepare yourself to take that next step? I've come to the conclusion that failing or compromising is always harmful. When we experience a setback, we try and fail. That's difficult. It's harmful on different levels. But hear me, never attempting life change is even more harmful. Here's the way I'd put it, and I'll put it on the screen. The good of wanting to change far outweighs the bad of failing when we try. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? The good of wanting to change. I'm going to change my family. I'm going to change my marriage. I'm going to change our financial picture. I'm going to change our mission work. I'm going to change my service to my church. I'm going to change something about me. The good of wanting to change far outweighs the bad of failing to try. You know what that teaches me? That teaches me don't be afraid to try. Further, don't beat yourself up when you fail. I mean, think about it. Don't we reward this idea when it comes to our children? For many years, my wife was a physical education teacher. And I used to go and participate, and I just loved it. She had 600 kids every week, and she knew most all of them by name. And there's always this handful of kids. They're not out in front. They're sort of middle of the pack or even far behind. They're not the strongest. They're not the fastest. They're not the most coordinated but man, they got the heart the size of Texas, and they try, and they try, and they try. And what do you do as a parent? What do you do as an educator? 
What do I do as a volunteer? What did my wife do as a teacher? Man, you encourage that. You don't teach them to resign to their failure. You don't teach them to resign to their place in the back of the line. No, you reward the try. God does too. God does too. In business, I am certain that you have worked with someone who is far less talented, but they accomplished far more simply because they were willing to risk it. They were willing to try even if they failed. If you're an athlete and you've ever participated in an organized sport, I almost guarantee you had a coach after a heart-wrenching loss who told you, listen, men, listen, ladies, we learn a whole lot more from failure than we do success. You ever had a coach tell you that? Ever had a teacher tell you that? We learn so much more when we try but fail than we could ever win when we try and simply succeed. So again, back to the question. What's the one big thing that you need to do? What is it? If you had a magic wand, you could wave it over one area of your life, what would you change? What would you fix? Now, I can make some suggestions. I can put them on a list above my head on this screen. And you will most likely see your one big thing. It's easy for me to do because all of our one big things are pretty common. They're all kind of related. If, if your one big thing is on the screen in a moment, don't feel like the Lone Ranger. I'm pretty certain there's someone about four rows away, maybe across the aisle, who's in that same fix. Maybe your one big thing is your health. Man, you've been toying with this idea for years. You need to take better care of yourself, and you know it. Your doctor has told you, look, I need you to work on this. I want you to work on that. But the idea of diet and exercise and changing your lifestyle, that's just not something that comes easy for most of us. But deep down, you know that's your one big thing. You want to feel better. You want to feel better about yourself. Maybe it has to do with alcohol. Maybe deep down, you know you drink too much, period. End of story. You don't need me to tell you that. You get it from your wife. You get it from your kids. You get it from your husband. You know that your one big thing is to walk away from that. Maybe it's prescription drugs. You'd be shocked to know how many professional people who sit in churches like this one every Sunday are addicted to some kind of medication. And they play games in their mind about how badly they need this. They tell lies and twist the truth, alter the facts to make everything fit. Maybe that's your one big thing. Maybe your one big thing is your marriage. We just finished a six-part series on family. And maybe something occurred to you, you know, especially to men. For the last 10 years, my wife's been carrying the water in our marriage. She's been doing all the work, man. I thought if I put a roof over their head, if I send them to private school, if my wife drives a brand new vehicle, that I've done my part. But I'm seeing now there's more. Maybe that's your one big thing. Maybe you're not married yet, but you're in a relationship. And maybe that relationship is a bad one. You're trapped and you know you need to get out. That's no way to live. Maybe your one big thing is to make that difficult choice. Maybe it has to do with church. You're the kind of person that when it's convenient, oh, you always come to church, but there's really no commitment there. Maybe there's really no involvement there, no engagement in a faith walk that's real. And maybe in the back of your mind, you know that your one big thing is to engage 
your faith walk, by committing to worship. And, and one that comes up all the time in conversations I have with people is your money, your finances. I had a conversation not long ago with a man. He said, Mike, I make three times what I made 10 years ago. He said, and yet it feels like we still have no money. Aren't you tired of the anxiety? Aren't you tired of making more but spending more? Making more but spending more? Aren't you, aren't you weary of those unplanned expenses that stress you month to month? What is your one big thing? You know what this book says? The book says pondering that one big thing is a quality exercise. It's a good thing. This book says that it is important to consider that one big thing, God's next big step. Hear me, church. Even if you've never taken the first step toward the one big thing, this book teaches that simply pondering the idea of change is a quality exercise. You are in a stronger place spiritually when you consider your one big thing. You're in a stronger place when you consider it, try it, even fail at it, than if you'd never, ever considered it in the first place. You say, well, where do you get that? I thought everybody in the Bible was a winner. No, no, not by far. Listen to Paul's advice in Ephesians chapter 5, one of my favorite passages. Paul writes, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You see that? Let me read that again. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, unfortunately, we live in a culture that promotes carefree living, not careful living, right? We live in a culture that that pursues an American dream of, hey, live it up, and the consequences be damned. Have a good time now. Lighten up, man. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had recently about our Super Bowl halftime a couple of weeks ago. Did you see that? I'm watching that game in privacy of my home, and I'm thinking, this is the best Super Bowl I have seen in years. And then halftime begins. And it took me back to when we used to have Super Bowl here in the church. Remember? We used to invite the whole church. We'd just fill that lobby full of food, man. And there'd be kids running all around. We'd even be tossing a little Nerf ball around the church. We got the game on the big screen. We're piping the sound in through these big speakers. Can you imagine how your pastor would have felt if with a church auditorium full of people and children, that halftime was playing on our big screen? I'd have been walking out going, it wasn't my idea. And yet I tried to have that conversation with successful, churched men in our community. You know what they told me? That's what I expect a preacher to say. Lighten up. Lighten up, man. Wasn't anything wrong with that. I'll be honest with you. Maybe I sound prudish. I felt like I was at a strip show, man. There are certain things in our culture that you simply can't address. Why? Because to do so makes you sound like a librarian, a schoolmarm, Careful living is for a Catholic school teacher who carries around a ruler to smack you on the back of the wrist. The American dream is to go for what you want. Hmm. 
It's countercultural, by sure, or for sure. Look, I hate to make statements like this because they make me sound old. <laughs> but in my experience, I have never met anyone, not one, on the backside of carefree living and all the consequences that came with it that didn't wish things could be different. Never. I've never met anyone on the backside of carefree decision-making, a carefree season in their life, who's now carrying around the baggage of those choices, who didn't wish things could be a little different. Now, please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Careful living is not paralyzed living. No one's asking you to be so careful that you can't make a choice. You won't take a risk. Careful living is simply consideration. A careful life is an examined life, and according to this book, that's a very strong way to live. Again, back to the goal. What is the goal? What is the aim? What's your target right now? Here's the question. What is your one big thing? What is it? Maybe I listed it a moment ago, and you swallowed hard. Because you've been turning that idea over in your mind. You haven't uttered those words to anyone. But deep down, you know that's God's next big step for you. Today, I want to encourage you to go after it. I want to encourage you to go after it. Even if you fail, God wants you to succeed. Because God's one big thing for you and God's one big thing for our church is more important than anything else. Now, be prepared when you make that choice because you're going to face all the same distractions that you once faced when you tried before. Taking the risk will always present you with distractions. Like, I'm thinking about a dad in our church who's really trying to reprocess this whole idea of the American dream in his mind. He's coming to the conclusion that 60 and 70 and 80 hour work weeks are doing him no good. He's coming to the conclusion that providing shelter for his family and, and higher education for his teenagers, brand new cars upon graduation, that's not what a quality dad is about. He's toying with the idea of less income but more family. And no sooner does he make that choice that he's hit with a major opportunity to take his business and split it in two and have a side business and make more money, a promotion, if you will, be his own boss, name on the door. Some of you are thinking, boy, for a long time, I've really wanted to become proactive in, in how we eat, you know, uh, more fresh vegetables, you know, more, more proteins and and healthy nutrients. Uh, we've got to change our eating habits. And today, in a matter of minutes, you're going to leave here and think, we don't have any fresh vegetables at home. Let's just go through the drive-thru. It's so much more convenient. It's easier. And yet that may be God's one big thing for you. Some of you want to take Steps toward financial responsibility. You want to figure out a way to take that little extra you have from time to time and pay down your debt. And no sooner will you decide to do just that. Hey, we're going to give a prioritized percentage of our giving to our church. 
We're going to take whatever extra we have left, and we're going to get ourselves out of debt. Boom, you're going to be hit with an unplanned $700 expense. It's happened to me. So what do you do? You go to the mailbox and see if you got a new, you're pre-approved for a $1,500 credit limit. That's what you're going to do, right? I guarantee as soon as you make up your mind to take that first step toward God's next big thing, you're going to meet with opposition. But listen to me. Your work is too important to be distracted. Stay on track. Your work is bigger than you think. It's more important than you think. It is worth the effort. It's worth the time. It is worth the sacrifice. Don't give up. Nehemiah didn't. A while back, I read an article by one of my favorite speakers. That's Andy Stanley. And he made this point, and he pointed to this principle. And so I turned to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. Now, if you know anything about Nehemiah, it is a, a book of building. There are a lot of churches that when they go into a building campaign, the pastor prepares a series of messages through Nehemiah because they're building the wall around Jerusalem. The wall is collapsed. We must rebuild the wall. And then they tie it into the church's building program. That's all fine and good. I actually considered doing that, but I thought it'd be a little cliched. I figured you'd all see it coming. So instead, we're going to Galatians. <laughs> but in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. Remember, at this time in ancient history, Israel is not free. Israel has been exiled. They've been under the power, the authority of other world kingdoms. First, the Babylonians. Remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? They were exiles under King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They were the dominant world power at the time. Israel was kind of free, but not really. Then came along the Assyrians. Finally, Artaxerxes I and the Persians. At this stage of the game, Israel's walls lay in ruins. Anybody who wanted to could take anything they wanted from Jerusalem, the once capital of God's great nation. Nehemiah is exiled, a Jew serving as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I. Now, if you don't know anything about ancient times, you've probably at least heard of a cupbearer. You know what a cupbearer did? Before the king tasted his food or drank his wine, the cupbearer tasted and drank to make sure it wasn't poisoned, to make sure it would harm the king in no way. But now, don't misunderstand and assume that a cupbearer was some sort of expendable servant. Uh, the cupbearers were very, very important. They grew very close to their kings. They became confidants with one another because they were together all the time. Nehemiah realizes that God's next big thing for him is to oversee the rebuilding of the wall. So he goes to his friend, his confidant, his king, Artaxerxes, and he says, please grant me the authority, grant me the time away that I might return to my homeland and rebuild the wall around my city. Artaxerxes not only gave him the time, he gave him the money, he gave him the resources. He wrote documents and signed them with his legal kingly seal, which gave Nehemiah the authority he needed to go and oversee this project. When you read the book of Nehemiah, you are reading Nehemiah's personal journal of the whole process. Now, as with any endeavor, I mentioned it a moment ago, Anytime you try to take some big step or some small step toward God's next big thing, you're going to meet with opposition, and Nehemiah did too. There were three men, primarily two, one named Sanballat and one named Tobiah. We're going to read about them in a moment. 
They did everything they could to slow down this process. They did everything they could to distract Nehemiah. They did everything they could to bring this rebuilding project to a standing halt. But Nehemiah wouldn't have it. In fact, finally they resort to murder. Their plan and their goal is to lure away Nehemiah away from the city, away from his work, away from his men, and kill him in the desert. Nehemiah has this response. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, so it's a wall that's complete without doors or gates. Verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let us meet together in one of these villages on the plain of Ono but they were scheming to harm me. Verse three. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. Watch this. I love it. Simple, but profound, life-changing even. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Good question. Let me read that again. I'm carrying on a great project. That's God's one big thing. I can't go down. I can't be distracted. Why should the work stop when the work is so much more important than you, your meeting, your ideas, your distraction, while I leave it and go down to you? Isn't it interesting? Nehemiah knew that this distraction might cost him his life. He knew what they were up to, but that's not how he responds to them. Instead, he points to the work. It's like he's not necessarily worried about himself. He knows God's going to take care of him. What he's concerned about is the work, the grandeur of this project, the importance of God's one big thing. Your work is important too, whatever it is. It may have been on that list a moment ago, and you thought to yourself, I've never said those words to my wife or my husband. I've never prayed those words, but that's it. Let me tell you something. Insignificant as it may seem to you, it's important. It's good work. It's a great work. Like Nehemiah, again, verse 3, I'm carrying on a great project. That's God's big thing. I cannot go down. I cannot be distracted. Why should the work stop? Again, dad's sitting here in an auditorium in a crowd this size. Guarantee there's a dad sitting here. He's got a new idea for family. He's wrestling with more time with his son, more time with his daughter. He wants to pour into his teenage children. He wants to be home at a decent hour in the evening so he can experience his family. But on the other side, there's the idea of the promotion, more money, more responsibility, more accolades, more applause, more recognition. Don't do it. Don't be distracted. Why should the good, great, grand work of your family stop so you can explore a little more money? Why? I guarantee there are young people in our congregation. They're dating. You're involved. You've made a commitment to personal purity, but the relationship's getting serious. And that guy, he's pushing for what he wants. Ladies, I challenge you, stand up. Why should I stop? Why should I be distracted? 
I've committed myself to a grand purpose, a great work. Maybe you're in a marriage and it's not going well. Maybe you're not happy right now. But please know deep down inside that you're committing to a great and grand work. And if you can hold on for a little longer, I'd encourage you to do that. Maybe the opposite is true. Maybe you're at your breaking point. You're in a bad relationship. And the idea of being alone scares you to death. Don't give up. You've committed to a great work. Look, I didn't have to give you examples today of your one big thing. Because deep down, you know what your one big thing is. Deep down, you know your own. You don't need me to point it out. You see, that's the beauty of this book and the faith walk. God wants you to know what his next big thing is. It's not a game to him. He's not playing cat and mouse. He's not toying with you. He wants you to see it because he wants you to try. He's already made you aware of it. That's why you wrestle with those feelings of urgency and, and obligation. Deep down, it's something you feel like you have to do. I say you need to act. Go for it. It's a great work. Don't be distracted like Nehemiah. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Later in the passage, almost at the end of chapter 6, verse 15 says, So the wall... For the sake of our discussion, your big thing. So the wall was completed in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence. In other words, Nehemiah knew his people were safe. They could live. They could be free. They could be comfortable again because they realized that this work had been done, watch, with the help of our God. And so will yours. It will very likely take a lot longer than 52 days. <laughs> I wish we could complete our project in 52 days. Not going to happen. Take the first step. Commit to the long haul. And whatever your one big thing is, God wants to help you with it. Here's what I want you to do this week. Every morning you wake up, maybe you're a person that gets up and says prayers. I hope you are. Maybe you even, even got a list. Just put that list away for a week. Instead of waking up and saying, God, today I need this, and don't forget about that, and Lord, remember this is important to me, I'd love to see what would happen if you woke up, all of us, every morning this week and said, Father, I want you to show me your next big thing. And then stop talking and wait and see what happens. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for guiding. Thank you for leading and showing. God, thank you for revealing to this church the next step in our journey toward ministry, life change. Help us, Father. Help us. It's a high, grand, costly goal, but we believe it, and it's worth it. And then on a, a different scale, a more personal scale, there are hundreds and hundreds of next big things that are represented in this church. Life transitions, changes that need to be made. Maybe things we've tried in the past and failed once or twice. God, convince us that it's important work and we should chase it with our whole heart. All these things we pray because of our faith in you 
your spirit, and your resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. I mean that. I will see you next time.